Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we continue our series on the church. If you recall, uh, we have been talking about the attributes of the church. Uh, I was hoping to cover all four attributes in a single evening, and as you remember a few weeks ago, that did not happen. Um, I'm not even going to pretend to try to, to wrap up the other three tonight. We want to take our time and understand positively what does the church exude? What is it that characterizes the church? We've looked at the marks of the church, in other words, those features that distinguish a true church from a false church. Proper preaching of the Word, proper administration of the sacraments, uh, and the regular use of the means of grace in terms of prayer. Um, but we also want to talk about what the qualities, the characteristics, the attributes of the church are. And as we confess, and as the whole church confesses week in and week out throughout this world, that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We talked about the unity of the church a few weeks ago. Tonight we will talk about the holiness of the church. And so with that in mind, I invite you to uh, follow along with me as I read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's probably not the first attribute that pops up in your head when you think of the church of Corinth. We spent several months now looking at the life of this particular congregation, and you think, man, what a mess. Here's a church that's been beset by infighting, factionalism, one-upmanship, slander, boast. Here's a church that has tremendous gifts, but they are using them to boast in themselves and to put down others. Here is a church that has engaged itself in gross sexual immorality has even approved of sexual practices that the broader pagans do not even approve of. There's a man in the congregation who's been sleeping with his own stepmother. Everybody's okay with it. Here is a church that fails to enact church discipline. In other words, here just seems to be a church that's failing on, on every step of the way. This is a mess. I wonder how many of us would walk into this church and at the end of the church service go, are you guys even Christians? Yeah. 
And yet, I want you to notice how Paul addresses this congregation. Even though it's been riddled with so many sins and has so many errors, so many errors done out of ignorance, yet Paul comes and addresses those issues in a very forceful way. And yet, he grounds it in the fact that they have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice here in verse 2, Paul writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, a very particular congregation, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word there means to be made holy. Here's a church that does not look holy by any stretch of the imagination. And yet Paul calls them holy. What in the world is Paul doing? What we see here is Paul is doing the very thing that we confess on a regular basis. That the holiness we have is one that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And is an attribute that runs through the life of the church. It is both a reality and it is also the standard. That because we are holy, we are to be what we have been called to be. And that is really what it is that's going in place here. And when you read the other New Testament letters, we see similar results. There's a certain grammar that is to be given to the church of God. Notice that you see here in verse 2, Paul is addressing a church that has been sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, one who promises that he will sustain you in that guiltlessness to the day of Christ's return. When it speaks of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is what is meant, the day of Christ's appearing, his second advent. In verse 9, it speaks to the faithfulness of God, who through the Spirit calls us into fellowship with the Holy God. I don't know how many of you, um, I'd actually assume that everybody's been to school, Um, but if you recall, even er at an early age, learning grammar, there are certain building blocks Uh, that you have to learn in order to be able to read. You first begin with uh, the alphabet. You learn your ABCs, be it through fun song or or however it is that you learned. I learned it through, you know, the the letter people. If you remember that uh, show on PBS uh, as a kid. And once you learn the letters, you move on to learning different types of words, basic definitions, and then the types of words that, evolve, uh, that, that, that come into view. You have nouns, you have verbs, you have adjectives, adverbs. The list goes on and on. And then you learn how to construct a sentence. And even as you're learning the basic rules of the grammar, you're so steeped in the life of language that you can actually make sentences before you even know what it means to make a sentence. Uh, think of you know, a three-year-old who says, <laughs> Mommy, now. Daddy, I want food. Why do I have to go to bed? Well, you know, our, our, our children uh, know how to construct sentences long before they enter kindergarten for the first time because they're so steeped in the culture of the grammar, even as they're being trained, oh, this is what it is I'm actually learning so that I can grow in this. So we find that with the Christian faith, there is a grammar to the gospel, uh, a particular grammar that we are so steeped in. Uh, That even as we revel in it from week to week, we are reminded even through the preaching of the word, what it is that we're actually confessing, that we might grow into it, that we might learn to speak more intelligibly. 
And for Paul, the grammar of the gospel contains two particular component parts. The first we might call the indicative. What do I mean by the indicative mood? Everybody knows what we mean by indicative. It's it's a statement. I am going to the store. I love chocolate cake. I ate a lot of cake this afternoon after the morning service. Enchilada soup is delightful. Ice cream and clam juice is not delightful. These are These are the basic things that we learn. The indicative statement, what we find is in Paul's letters, he so often begins his letters with the great indicatives of the gospel. God has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from our estate of sin and misery. He delivers us from our estate of sin and misery by pouring out His Spirit on His church And so that through the preaching of the Word, the Spirit works in our hearts, enabling us to believe what God has promised so that we might walk in His ways. It's the Gospel in a nutshell. The Father sent the Son so that the Son might pour out His Spirit. That we might walk in newness of life. It's the great indicative. But following the great indicative comes the second part of Paul's grammar. Not only is there an indicative, but there is also what we call an imperative. Go to your room. Finish your vegetables. You need to go mow the lawn. I remember uh, when I was in high school, my dad uh, would put it like this. uh, uh, I'd be walking around the house, and my dad said, Hey, Charles, you want to mow the lawn? I'd say what any person who's asked that question would honestly say, no. So there would be a follow-up statement. Hey, Charles. Yeah, Pops. Mow the lawn. So I bent three crankshafts, and I never had to mow the lawn ever again. Uh, Just ran over roots. Apparently, I'm terrible at the use of lawnmowers. What we see here is that there are imperatives given in Scripture. and, uh, And I think there's a certain... I think for many of us who grew up in, in a more legalistic setting, we, we, we revel in the indicatives of Scripture, but we really cringe at the imperatives. Um, what we find in the Gospel is that both the indicative and the imperative are given, and we should learn to love both. But there's a proper ordering, and there's got to be proper room for that. You know, we, we, have to, we have to love the great story of redemption. But because we've been called as a people, there are things that we are called to do. We, we need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Longest psalm in Scripture says what? How I love your law. I delight in it. Lord, teach me to love it more. What we find is that for Paul, there is an indicative aspect to the gospel and there is an imperative as well. And this is a pattern that we see throughout the whole of Scripture, even in the Ten Commandments. We talked about that this morning. The Lord brings Israel out of Egypt, brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. What does He say? I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of uh, the house of bondage. What is that? That's an indicative statement. It's a declaration of what has happened. What follows it? You shall have no other gods before me. In light of the great message of redemption, the indicative, 
there comes the imperative how we live in light of the gospel message. And what we see is that holiness in the mind of Paul is both an indicative and an imperative. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who have been made holy in Christ Jesus. That's what that word there, sanctified, means. It's something that has happened. It's something that happens by faith. Holiness is the reality. If you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ has made you holy. Look down at verse 30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice that Christ is our holiness. If you put your faith in Christ, Christ, Christ has made you holy. That's the indicative of the gospel. And the second part to it is, now be what you are. If you've been called holy, you are to walk in holiness. And that fills out, really, the rest of Paul's letter. If you look here at the order, for just as a, a, a miniature example here, and, and you'll see this pattern reflected in, in just about every one of Paul's letters. Typically, the first half of every one of Paul's letters or Paul spent, uh, spending a great deal of time on the indicative of the gospel. And then the second half of the letter is him talking about the imperatives. If you think of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Chapter 2, for once you were born into darkness, but by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the first three chapters right there. Chapter 4, Therefore, in light of these things, walk in humility, grace, and love. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands even as the church submits to Christ. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, care for your slaves because you'll have to give an account on the last day for the way in which you treat them. Parents, don't exasperate your children, but children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Finally, pray. In other words, the, in light of the great indicatives of Scripture that the, the whole trajectory of the history of the human race that God has sent His Son now spells concrete principles on how we are to live in light of the dawning of the new creation. God has come to make us holy, and you are holy in Christ. It is a holiness that is received by faith because Christ is made yours. But now you are called to walk in that holiness. You've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. Now act like a son and daughter of the Most High. Bear the imprint of your Father. And so you see that here in 1 Corinthians 1 to those, again, chapter 1, verse 2, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does he do now when you get down to verse 10? I appeal to you, brothers, stop fighting against one another. You've been baptized into one body. Now act like you are part of an actual body. 
chapters 5 to 7 of this letter. Paul says, you've been washed clean, made pure, so stop indulging yourselves in the various forms of sexual immorality. The list goes on and on. Don't give in to idolatry, Paul will say in chapter 10. Why? Because you have been brought to a table to participate in the benefits of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very simple. When we talk about the holiness of the church, we speak of both the reality and the goal. The reality is the great indicative. You have been sanctified. The goal, therefore, be what you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. That's a word there meaning the verbally abusive speaking of the ways in which you should speak to your wife or husband or children in private, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what does Paul say? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. In other words, you were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In other words, not that the Spirit has come and has worked faith in our hearts. You have been washed clean. Even, it's a positional holiness. But now as we succumb to temptation and struggle against indwelling sin, we are called to pray on a daily basis. Forgive us our debts. Even as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do what? Not just to forgive us of our sins, but also to do what? To cleanse us from our unrighteousness. There is a washing that takes place by the Spirit as we are washed clean of the sin and the shame, even those sins that we continually fall into time and time again, that if you turn to Christ, He will make you clean. Holiness is the basis. You've been made holy through faith in Christ, but now you're called to walk in that holiness and newness of life. 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Why? Because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Therefore, glorify God in your body. In other words, what Paul is getting at throughout the course of the, the, his first letter to Corinth is that the Spirit demands holiness because He has come to occupy your hearts but the same Spirit who demands holiness also produces it. And it's a holiness that is received by faith. It is a holiness that comes as we are called to, with the Spirit's aid, put sin to death, to say no to sin, to learn to repudiate sinfulness. The, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, Paul writes Timothy or Titus. And that it is the grace of godliness that trains us to repudiate unrighteousness and ungodliness. Hebrews chapter 10. We have a summary of that indicative imperative uh, comment, uh, uh, paradigm here um, that, that, that we see throughout Paul's letters. In, the, in Hebrews 10, which I, I actually don't think was written by Paul, but you see it reflected in every letter of the New Testament. Hebrews 10.14 says this, For by one offering... 
Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That really gives us a summary of our understanding of the holiness of the church. Christ, through His offering, has made you perfect for all time. Who has He made perfect? Well, those who are being sanctified. It's a declaration of holiness, an impartation of the holiness of the Spirit where He works to make you what God has already declared you to be. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore, since we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or as we heard even this morning, 2 Corinthians 7.1, because we have these promises, what promises? That we've been united to Christ by the Spirit. Let us therefore cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, the indicative grounds the imperative. Because God has brought salvation through Christ, therefore live in light of that salvation. Here we see that holiness is a focus on the moral renewal of the Spirit as we seek to live in light of God's law by the power of the Spirit we can really summarize this particular attribute of the church, the holiness of the church, it's simply this. Be what you are. Or as Leviticus puts it, as Peter quotes Leviticus in his first letter, you are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for the beauty of holiness. We ask that You would teach us to love the grammar of the Gospel. That we would delight in the indicative of salvation. That God has acted in history by sending His Son so that the Son might pour out the Spirit. But we ask that You would also teach us to delight in the great imperatives You have given us that because we have been justified, sanctified, and adopted, that we would delight to walk in Your ways and that we would delight in those ways more than the path that the world offers. We do ask that You would make us holy, that You would teach us to repudiate ungodliness, that by Your Spirit You would correct us, and that if we failed to be corrected, that by Your church and in Your providence You would discipline us and train us unto righteousness and for a holiness without which none may see the Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.